Good evening. Good evening. Happy Sabbath. Thank you so much for joining us for the final night of the Restoration Series. We do have one more message tomorrow morning for church, but it is our final night. Just want to say on behalf of myself and the Revelation of Hope Singers, we've really appreciated you and we have been blessed by your company and your fellowship. And we hope that you continue on in your faith, you continue to grow closer to Jesus and fulfill the great purposes and plans he has for your life. You know, I said something a few nights ago and I want to repeat it because I believe it's very relevant for tonight's message. And that is this. An English author put it this way. There are two important days in your life. Just a reminder. Two important days in your life. The day you are born and the day when you discover why. I pray and hope that this is one of those days. Amen. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Let's ask God to bless us in a very special way with His Spirit. Father in heaven, we thank you again. Thank you so much for being a faithful God. Thank you for a beautiful Sabbath in which we can sense your presence and your holiness in an extraordinary way. Lord, we just pray and ask that you would really speak to our hearts and minds individually, personally. God, you remind us of the purpose and plan that you have for our life, of the great calling that you have upon each person. And Lord, may we feel the pull of heaven again. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we've been talking about some interesting things here at Restoration. We've been talking about life's big questions. We've been talking about purpose, trying to understand the great controversy motif, learning about relationships if you came to the noon meeting. And I myself have felt really blessed. The Bible says, he who waters will himself be watered. Tonight's presentation is going to be a very interesting one, and I want to approach it very humbly. I don't come to you as one who has all the knowledge and wisdom in the world. I don't come to you as one who thinks he knows it all. I come to you as one who knows what the Bible is teaching on this subject. And it is your job, as I've said during the new meetings, to go home, to pray about these things, to inculcate them into your experience as the Spirit is guiding you. Can you say amen to that? And so... With this in mind, please be prayerful, and if something here is just offensive, take some time to think and pray about it. Amen? We ought to be people who are thinking about things and not be so quick to be emotional about it at first. The emotional part will come, but take some time just to learn, to grow, and as I always say in my meetings, check these things out. You yourself examine these things out. Socrates says, the unexamined life is one that is not worth living. The unexamined life is one that is not worth living. So in this, we want to make sure we're examining our faith, what we stand for, what the Bible is teaching, and just some of the providences of God. You know, in today's society, we see a lot of things that are taking place in the world around us. A couple nights ago, we talked about prophecy and some of the signs that are happening in our world. We talk about that uh, well-known uh, 
atomic bulletin of scientists, that group of very legitimate scientists who are saying something is severely wrong with our world today. Society itself is full of all sorts of troubles. People are searching the Bible, trying to understand the times that we are living in. Immorality seems at an all-time high. Every time you read the news, it's only bad news, right? You hardly hear any good news. Most of it's just bad news. The Bible says something very interesting about truth. Take a good look at what the Bible says right here in Isaiah 59, verse 14. Justice is turned away backward, and righteousness stands far off. For truth has fallen in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him. As God is looking upon the condition of the world, truth and righteousness and justice and mercy seems to be standing afar off. It seems to have fallen in the street. And so here you see this very interesting biblical picture about the condition of our world today. Many individuals, as I said before, are wanting answers for these times. We're seeing all sorts of things that are happening with leadership, with governments, with nations. Everyone is asking the question, what's going to come next? What's going to happen in our world today? And it's almost as if the entire world is on this cliff waiting for the very next step. Everyone is holding their breath as something is about to take place in the world around us. It's very remarkable when you begin to see what's happening in Bible prophecy and what's happening in the world. You know, anytime there's a time of darkness in Scripture, God seems to have sent a very special kind of power, a very mysterious kind of power that would oftentimes show up at very unusual moments when it seems like Israel was in darkness and when it seemed like Israel was just groping around trying to find its way, when it seemed that worldliness had gained a great hold upon darkness, God would send this very mysterious power to show up to do a mighty work and then disappear. The Bible talks about this one time when this power showed up. This power had a name. The Bible describes a time when the, the head ruler, which was King Ahab, had married Jezebel. The man who was supposed to represent Israel was now married to paganism. And Israel had fallen into corruption. All sorts of things were taking place. God's law was being broken. People had no concept of who God really was. And all of a sudden, a mysterious man shows up and he begins to deal with the situation. The Bible says his name was Elijah. And this mysterious power seems to have no origin, but he shows up on the scene and he confronts the situation in a very powerful way. One time he confronts this great king who was responsible for all the troubles that had taken place over Israel. And he confronts him and he says this, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, and notice this, have in that you have forsaken the what? Commandments of who? God, the commandments of the Lord, and have followed the Baals. Here, Elijah's confronting the situation. Ladies and gentlemen, oftentimes we're reading the scripture in the Old Testament, we're thinking, what's the big deal? Why does God have such a problem with these pagan religions? Is it just differences of belief? If you do a study of anthropology and archaeology, what you will discover about these pagan nations is that there were very vicious kinds of belief systems. Very vicious kinds of belief systems. And just what basic archaeology is revealing about this, there was a lot of behavioral problems and violations of people's rights. 
Young children were being murdered and sacrificed to these gods. Prostitution, temple prostitution was happening, all sorts of other things that was maligning the picture of God upon earth. And so this man, Elijah, was sent into the very heart of Israel, which was supposed to be the very people who, are, who have the truth about who God was, the clearest, most accurate truth of who God was. And if this place had fallen, ladies and gentlemen, the entire world would be in very, very deep trouble. And so God sends this man, Elijah, to the very heart of Israel to confront the problem. And so Elijah does. He begins to preach about the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden, the revival begins to take place. When the Bible teaches, he mysteriously disappears. People try to understand, where did this man go? Where did this great power go? It's very interesting when you read about what the Bible says next. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and what? Dreadful day of the Lord. The last book of the Old Testament says this very special prophecy. God would send this mysterious power right before the second coming. It's very remarkable. When you read that last chapter, Malachi chapter 4, it starts off with the great day of the Lord that's about to take place, and it ends with this passage about remembering all that God had given to Moses. So looking forward, but also looking backwards. And part of this Elijah power, this Elijah entity that would be showing up, would be to bridge the gap between the old and the new. God promises right at the very end of the Old Testament and people begin to look forward to when this power would show up. The Bible says he would show up before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He would come at the most needed moment and he would do a powerful work. And sure enough, right before Jesus came, the Bible says this, talking about a mysterious man who apparently seems to come out of nowhere, begins to preach a mighty message, baptizing many people. Take a good look at what the scriptures are teaching. In those days, John the Baptist Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I never forgot when I first became a Christian, I watched this movie about Jesus. It was a very horrible movie about Jesus. It started off with this giant grasshopper creature on this plant and this wild man looking up and he grabs it and he puts it in his mouth it's a very interesting way to start this movie this was supposed to be John the Baptist but no ladies and gentlemen John the Baptist had a plant-based diet that was locust beans this man was preaching a lifestyle not uh, preaching a message not just by his words but by his very lifestyle he was communicating something powerful about the goodness of God and about the righteousness of God he shows up at a very interesting time King Herod was also involved in a relationship he should not have been the leaders of Israel had combined with the world. And it was this time this power shows up. And he begins to do a mighty work and he begins to speak a powerful message. And the Bible eventually teaches us he was beheaded. His work cut short. He came at the most needed time to do a mighty work. 
Well, it's very interesting. Jesus was asked a question about John the Baptist, and look what he says right here. He says, he heard this, this question that was asked by the disciples. Wait a minute, isn't Elijah supposed to come before the second coming? Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah, what? Is coming. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that past, future, or present tense? It's what? It's future. So is Jesus affirming this Elijah power would show up again, yes or no? Absolutely. Look what he says next. Indeed, Elijah is coming first. And now notice this, and will what? Restore what? All things. Notice this, he hones in on what this power would do when it would show up right before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He would restore all things. In fact, I was doing a study on the Greek word. It actually means to reconstitute, to bring back together that which was lost. He would bring it back and he would pull it back together. This is what this Elijah power would accomplish. But then look what he says next. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wish. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of who? John the Baptist. Here Jesus takes that Malachi passage and he says, look, there is a dual application to this. John the Baptist was this power Elijah that was to show up. He himself was not Elijah, but he represented that power and spirit of Elijah. But Jesus makes it very clear that this Elijah power would show up again to do a mighty work. And part of his mighty work would be to restore that which was lost. And this is extremely important as we're trying to understand a little bit more about the message of Elijah and this power of Elijah. His primary job would, to be, would be to bring about a restoration of all that was lost. And he would accomplish this mighty work right before the second coming. And we're going to be discussing that and understanding a little bit more. Very interesting, you begin to notice patterns emerge from the first Elijah, from the second Elijah, and these things are pointing forward to the kind of condition that this third Elijah would be proclaiming a mighty message in, or during. George Orwell once said this, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. This was a man who wrote several different kinds of books, some of the things I absolutely do not agree with, but he predicted many things that have actually come true. He was no prophet, but he was a man who could see the way things were heading in our world. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act, something that could get you killed if you're not careful. Simply so, because pervasive in our world today is some of the most sinister lies concerning the character of God. The majority of these lies originated during the Dark Ages and throughout the rest of the Middle Ages. In the early part of Christendom, the church began to incorporate many of the elements it originally separated itself from. Thus became a long, protracted process in which many of the distinct Bible truths were expunged or twisted. The marriage of the church and the world produced one of the most dangerous, now pay attention to this, produced one of the most dangerous entities of all time. That time of darkness was prophesied for the early church and also foretold about another dark time soon approaching. In fact, when you read the people who existed right before the flood, that generation that the Bible says his thoughts were every thought was wicked came 
as came to be because the sons of God were mixing with the daughters of the world. And this, this offspring was produced that was very, very wicked. Had the wrong picture of who God was and begin to carry out all sorts of things. And see the early church, when it began to marry the world, produce a very strange kind of offspring during the dark ages. An offspring that would cause so much evil to take place. Very interesting when you see what happens in the early church. All the disciples were being martyred, dying off. John was one of the, the last living disciples. Paul was one of the last living disciples. And he spoke some very interesting words to the elders in Ephesus right before he was about to be beheaded. He says this concerning what would happen to the church. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among you yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember, for, for three days I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day with tears. Here Paul is giving some warning. He is saying, look, when I die, when I'm taken away, he said this, Savage wolves will come into the church. He was trying to give a very strong warning to these elders, these leaders, letting them know that something was about to happen to the early church. Wolves will come in and they would destroy the flock. They would draw people away. And what you find out in the early church is that the church began to marry the world after a period of time and all sorts of strange things begin to take place and enter into the church itself. The very church that Jesus himself established began to be corrupted more and more until it finally married the state. Somebody once said this, it was Ravi Zacharias, he says, religious politics leads to the death of both of them. Religious politics lead to the death of both of them. And sure enough, what you find out about this entity that began to emerge during the Dark Ages, the first part of the Middle Ages, you find about an entity that became so powerful, it began to make kings obedient and it would force the world into submission. And those that rejected this entity were oftentimes killed and martyred. When I first became a Christian, I was somebody who was very fascinated by art history, specifically the Renaissance age. And so as I was understanding more and more about Bible prophecy, I was blown away because I could see very clearly how Bible prophecy accurately foretold things that was in history, years, generations before these things were written. And it was during this time of darkness, all sorts of things began to enter into the church. The Bible itself was moved away. This may sound like a basic history lesson, but you're going to see where I'm going with this. It was during this time that all sorts of basic biblical truths that we hold near and dear to our hearts were removed. The Bible itself locked up. The scriptures were only understood in the vernacular, not in the vernacular of the people, but in Latin, which was not the vernacular of the people or the common language of the people. Indulgences were sold. People's concept of what basic relationship with God looked like turned into a form, and people were terrified of God and the church. And the behavior itself was reflected. It was during this time that God began to raise up various men and women who stood for Bible truth, who began to follow what the scriptures were teaching, and they themselves were persecuted because of it. One individual by the name of John Huss, or Jan Huss, if you would like to say it in any other way, 
He was somebody who was persecuted and eventually put to death because of his belief in the Bible and his belief in Jesus as his personal savior, which was contrary to the condition of the church at that time. In fact, when they were putting him on the stake, they put this headpiece on him that had demons on it, and they said to him, we commit your soul to the devil, in which he replied, and I commit my soul to Jesus. And as they were burning him at the stake, he was singing the song, Jesus, now son of David, have mercy on me. What is so interesting is, one of the priests made a, a, a remark, something that was recorded in history, as John Huss was put on the stake. You see, John Huss, the, the name actually means goose. One of them made a remark, and he says, we're about to see a cooked goose in which he replied through prophetic utterance, it may be so, but these are his words. There will come a time where they will fly an eagle which you will not be able to touch. And sure enough, 100 years later, there came a very interesting man by the name of Martin Luther. And when this individual showed up, he began to cause so much havoc in the world. He began to preach about righteousness by faith, justification by faith. He began to espouse biblical teachings. And at that time was considered outlawed and contrary. They attempted to kill him multiple times. But more and more as his faith in God's word grew stronger and stronger, his voice became more powerful and more powerful and could not be shut down. 100 years later, this man showed up. And he began to initiate like never before and take the next step of leading what you call the Protestant Reformation. This man was a very powerful man of God, but in the beginning of his spiritual experience, he was somebody who struggled with God. He had a lot of problems. But as he began to understand the basic, most powerful element of your relationship with God, righteousness by faith, justification by faith, he remembered the words, the just shall live by faith. It became the guide principle in his life and with the vengeance he began to speak in mighty ways oftentimes he would be hunted he'd be persecuted forced into um, judge or courtrooms where he would testify for God the diet of worms he was forced into this place where he stood before some of the greatest kings and there he made his stand before God John Eck was an individual, one of the great Catholic doctors, who would be somebody who would debate that case, and John Eck was somebody who was to be feared in these debates. And John Eck oftentimes would refer to the writings of the church fathers over in tradition, over and over again. And then Martin Luther would refer to the Bible, and he says, show me from the scripture where I am wrong. And ultimately, he made his stand upon the scriptures, and they could not take him down. In fact, what was so interesting, he said this. He said, I hope when I die, I become a ghost. He said, so I can haunt all the papists and priests and carnal that have destroyed the name of God so that they may know that a dead Luther is far more worse than a living one. <laughs> Amen? Yes. 
See, we may think it was just, oh, here was just a man who had some problems theologically. If you understood the conditions of the world at that time, ladies and gentlemen, this man was standing up for a truth in a world that did not have truth anymore. In fact, as I shared a little bit earlier, when you take a good look at the amount of persecution that was taking place, ladies and gentlemen, the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution. It makes the Holocaust look like a walk in the park. If you actually consider and weigh out the difference between the Holocaust and what took place during the Dark Ages and into the Middle Ages, you would be utterly shocked by how many people lost their lives multiple times at the same time. Thousands wiped out. Conservative estimates go up from 50 to 100 million people were killed. The majority of them because they stood for Bible truth and was sort of brushed aside in history as if it was some kind of religious conflict. But when you begin to understand what was taking place, it is astounding. And you begin to understand that God was raising up these Protestant reformers, left and right, and each one of them was returning the truths that were lost. They were restoring the truths that were lost because of iniquity and because the evil had entered into the church itself. It's so powerful when you begin to realize that every one of these reformers, step by step, were bringing truth back that was lost during the dark and middle ages. Powerful things when you begin to see, step by step, each, each uh, pace they were taking. The Waldenses with the great Bible truth, and then you have John Huss with obedience. You begin to see Martin Luther begin to preach grace, and many of the things that were lost during the Dark Ages, John Calvin, sanctification, the Anabaptist, baptism by immersion, John Wesley, holiness, step by step, these great reformers were bringing back truth that was lost during the Dark and Middle Ages. Just like a football player trying to get over to the other side. He's making his way, gets tackled. All of a sudden, one of his own team member takes the ball. He continues going, he gets taken down, he fumbles. Another team member takes it. And step by step, the great things that were, in work, that were taking place during the darkness were being restored by God himself as he was raising up these individuals. Can you say amen to that? And that's powerful when you realize what was taking place. But ladies and gentlemen, the Protestant Reformation is not over. Can you say hallelujah to that? Over and over again, God was restoring truth until the truth shall belt the world like never before. God is restoring the biblical truth and the biblical gospel that was lost during the dark ages. And the most powerful thing is, we are living at its most crucial, most vital, most essential stage. And if this stage fails, ladies and gentlemen, the entire Protestant Reformation will have failed. This is a crucial stage right here. This is where the entire Protestant Reformation, everything, every one of these generations and men have lived their life to take the gospel one step further. If we fail right here, we're in big trouble. John Robinson, great pastor, said something very interesting. He was a pilgrim's pastor. One of the reasons why people came to America originally was to escape the persecution by the Roman church that was happening. All you need to do is look at history, ladies and gentlemen. Just look at history and be honest. I was somebody who came from Hinduism, somebody who had a Sikh background, and as I was learning these great things, I could not deny what history was consistently saying. 
I would be blind to just say, well, that's just somebody's opinion. This was not somebody's opinion. This was history. John Robinson said something very interesting describing where these people were going, where these reformers were going, because when these reformers were died, all of a sudden people stopped. They would not go any further. They built churches. Look what he says right here. The Lutherans cannot be drawn to go beyond what Luther saw. Whatever part of his will our God has revealed to Calvin, they, Lutherans, will rather die than embrace it. And the Calvinists, you see, stick fast to where they were left by that great man of God, who yet saw not all things. This is a misery much to be lamented. For though they were precious shining lights in their time, yet God has not revealed his whole will to them. And were they now living, they would be as ready and willing to embrace further light as they had received. Can you say amen to that? This man was saying something powerful. He's saying, look, I am not completely uh, restrained to a church. He says, I'm following the truth. And these great reformers like Martin Luther and Calvin and John Huss, if they were alive and still to that time, they would keep moving, follow the Bible truth as it was being revealed, as the Protestant Reformation was taking step after step after step back to God. It's very remarkable when you see what the Bible is saying right here, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18 to 19. The path of the just. Are you on the path of the just? The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. If you are on the path of the just, the Bible's saying something very interesting, that your path should become brighter and brighter and brighter. What is the purpose of light? The purpose of light is to see. In other words, the scripture is teaching that if you're on the path of the just, what's going to happen on your path? You're going to understand more. You're going to see more. You're going to grasp truth more and more as God is unfolding this to you. But that is if you are on the path of the just. I want to be on the path of the just. I hope to God you want to be on the path of the just. And as God can trust you with that truth, he will unfold it more and more. And your clarity and your spiritual sight will become greater. It's so powerful when you begin to realize this and onwards into eternity. But then what's very remarkable is the contrast. The Bible says this, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. They don't know where they're at. They're fumbling around, trying to see where the light is. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says in Psalms 119, thy word is a what? Thy word is a what? Thy word is a lamp unto what? My feet and a light unto what? what? My path. The best thing for you to do, ladies and gentlemen, regardless of whatever background or persuasion you come from, is to follow that light as God is revealing it in his word and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen to that? A powerful call that comes at the very end of time. Revelation 18 actually describes the verb that is used in this calling. The word is, this word is megaphone. What does the word megaphone mean? What? What does the word megaphone mean in Greek? What do you think that word is kind of saying? It means megaphone. <laughs> I wasn't asking for interpretation, but that's okay. The Bible is saying with a, a megaphone voice, a loud voice, the scripture is saying, come out of her, my people. 
Come out of Babylon. The word Babylon you see is throughout Scripture, and God is trying to show whether it's in its literal state or in its spiritual state, it represents confusion, and God is not the author of confusion. Amen? So he's calling people out of confusion. He's calling people out of darkness. He's calling people out of these things and into his marvelous light. And in our world today, ladies and gentlemen, there is confusion that is happening like never before. Individuals who are saying the Protestant Reformation is dead, they are wrong. Nobody told me that it was dead. The Protestant Reformation is still going on. And if Martin Luther was still alive, he'd be lifting up his voice. John Calvin was still alive. He'd be lifting up his voice. John Huss was still alive. He'd be lifting up his voice and say, wait a minute, the Protestant Reformation is not over. God has called us to follow these powerful biblical truths. And all sorts of things are happening in our world today that are telling us it was just a big misunderstanding. You tell me how 100 million people lost their lives and it was just a big misunderstanding. Just a big misunderstanding? Over the most essential part of your walk with God, which is justification by faith? Although people may agree and they said, oh no, it was just a big misunderstanding, there are now concessions to that thing. Ladies and gentlemen, the essence of justification is important and how justification is received is just as important. Men may say, yeah, we're believing the exact same thing, but if they require sacraments and they require confession to the priest, ladies and gentlemen, it is not the same thing. This is not the same thing. These are the very things that Martin Luther nearly lost his life for and millions of Christians lost their life for because they believe that they can come to Jesus. They, can believe, they believe that they can come to God and they didn't have to go to any priest. They can go straight to God and find pardon and forgiveness. And how precious is that to you? That teaching has kept me a Christian for 13 years of my life. And if it wasn't for that teaching, I would not be standing here today. And neither would you. God is calling us to hold fast to these powerful truths that he has set up. Justification by faith. It is that powerful teaching. And God wants us to remember the righteousness, of, the righteousness that comes by faith is something that we as Christians must never give up. Amen. I never forgot one day I was actually doing some, it was uh, one of the elders inviting me over to their house Thanksgiving Day. I was up in Syria, so I said, okay, I'll go visit some of the elders. They had a delicious Thanksgiving meal. You know, I grew up not having Thanksgiving meal. I mean, it, it's, we considered a Christian holiday, and my household really didn't celebrate it. We always say things like, that's the white people's holiday. <laughs> and we would have a regular Indian dinner, but here it was in Syria just about two years ago. And I was leaving, I mean, you see, American people love to eat dinner very early. Indians, we eat at like 10 p.m., 11 p.m. And they're saying, hey, come over to the house. And I was like, it's 3.30. <laughs> so I went. Had a delicious food, wonderful fellowship. And as I was leaving, all, every, all the streets were empty. And, we can, and I was just driving home when all of a sudden I noticed there, there was a church, I think it was St. Mary's, and there was a young man who I was just watching from the corner of my eye, and he was coming out of his car in an empty parking lot. He came, and he began to knock on the doors of that church. And I felt this impression, go talk to him. And I was like, no, that's just probably the food talking. <laughs> 
and I was there and the light was taking forever. I don't know what was happening. It was taking a long time. And so like it was there and I was just there and I was waiting. And then all of a sudden I felt this impression, go into that parking lot. So I groaned, I turned into that parking lot. I'm about six foot tall, hairy Indian. When I walk up to people, it's like we call the police, right? <laughs> and so parked the car and I began walking up towards him just as normal as I can be. <laughs> and he came out. Nobody apparently answered the doors that he was knocking on. And so he was walking towards his car and I was walking towards him. And <laughs> anyways, uh, so I was walking up to him and I said, hey, how you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm doing good. I said, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, I just wanted some prayer. I said, sure, I'll pray with you. He said, yeah, that would be good. And so we prayed. And I said, I'm a pastor, you know, if you ever need anything. And I handed some literature. He said, thank you very much. And uh, he said, I was just praying. I wanted to go talk to a Catholic priest. I said, okay, hey, you can do what you feel is best. But then I said, um, you know, hey, if you ever want to study the Bible, hey, let me know. <laughs> what, I mean, how are you witnessing? <laughs> See, you do better. Okay, it's never smooth, it's okay. <laughs> say what you gotta say, right? But it's how you say it, amen? And so I was like, hey, you wanna study the Bible? And he was like, yeah, here's my phone number. And I said, hey, I'm preaching this Saturday. And he was like, Saturday? I said, yeah, it's different, you should come. <laughs> and he's like, okay. And it was so interesting, it was about a church. I have a you know, fairly big sized church, about three to 400 people. Came and sat in the back. I know his mindset. She came in there and I said in front of everybody, everybody say hi to my friend Carlos, way in the back. It's like those are the most notorious kinds of pastors, right? That's what I did. And he stood up and everyone said, hi and amen and blah, blah, blah. And so what happened is um, we continued to study the Bible together. And he shared with me that he was praying over some things, some things that were really heavy on his heart. And he was looking to talk to a priest. And so we began a time of Bible study. I never forgot this, okay? This was so interesting. One day we studied this topic about salvation, how salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, okay? He was sitting on the couch, and I was sitting there, and I was telling him, I said, yeah, and you don't need to go to any priest, any man. You can go straight to Jesus, and Jesus will get you to the Father. And I never forgot this reaction of his. <laughs> he was sitting down. He stood up, and he said, what did you just say? And I said, you don't need to go to any priest to find forgiveness or pardon of sins. You can go straight to God through the blood of Jesus. He did this. This was his reaction. There was I and this was me. This was him. He was like, are you telling me I don't need to go to those priests over there? And I said, no. And then he went like this. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like he spinned around. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That young man is baptized. He loves Jesus. He loves the doctrine of justification by faith. He believes in forgiveness. And you know what the most remarkable thing is? The police aren't chasing him as much anymore either. <laughs> Seriously. He had a lot of problems in the beginning. I had to counsel him. Hey, I'm racing from the cops right now. What should I do? Pull over, man. <laughs> but let me tell you something. 
Carlos is a powerful witness to everybody now. He has been so free. He was dealing with this depression, trying to understand who God was and the providences that were happening in his life. He could not understand. And before he went to that church, he made three prayers. And one of his prayers was to talk to a pastor. God answered it by sending me <laughs> after Thanksgiving. So nobody else was around. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, there are so many people that want to be free. Because the, the, the framework of religion has locked this down. And when they begin to understand the beautiful truths they have in Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, it will set them free. Can you say hallelujah to that? And it's just not, you know, the Roman church, other religions that try to find through works a way to heaven. But God is calling us to understand it is solely through the blood of Jesus and it is through faith alone. Amen? And as that is revealed more and more, you're going to see two powers rising up. One that is powerful, that is taking the gospel to the entire world, and another antagonist power to that. When Abel gave his sacrifice to God, what did Cain do to him? Killed him. In the parable of the lost uh, son, when the son came back and he was so blown away by the grace of God, what was the response of the second son? Anger. And when the third angel's message is preached, righteousness by faith, there will be an antagonistic response to that as well. But God wants, to lift up, wants us to lift the cross higher and higher. No matter what men may say, God wants us to follow his word. And that's why the Bible says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her where? My people. Notice this. Lest you share in her sins unless you receive her plagues. God has a biblical movement on earth. He has a very visible church, and he also has an invisible church. And the very fact the Bible is saying, come out of her, my people, it's letting us know God has people everywhere. Amen? But he does not want them to stay there because it is a disadvantage to their faith. He is wanting them to understand, and so he is calling them out of the invisible church into the visible church. And this is what this powerful call is saying in Revelation chapter 18. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to let you know from my own personal experience, and this is something that you need to test out and see for yourself. God has called us out of the world, and he has called us into what I believe is the greatest movement that God has set up on earth. This is more than just a church. It's a powerful movement of destiny. And the reason why I am a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, ladies and gentlemen, is because when I study the Bible, I begin to see six powerful reasons that are undeniable in this great movement. Number one, Jesus is the head and reason of this movement. Number two, the church will resemble the early church in truth. And I believe this with my whole heart. If there was something that was fundamentally wrong with one of the teachings of this church, I would not be here. And I say that with all seriousness. I'm not just saying a sort of an off-the-cuff remark. Because if one truth falls, the entire structure begins to fall down. And so here we understand that the early church, the Bible says, was the ground and pillar of the truth. I never forgot I met a wonderful Pentecostal man. He was a minister. And one day as we were talking, he said to me, Pastor, do you speak in tongues? And I said, well, I talk a lot. <laughs> and he says, no, no, no. Do you speak in, with the gift of tongues? And I said, if you're referring to the biblical gift of tongues, I do not. And he says, it's because the Spirit of God is not in you. 
You know, it's very interesting. People are very quick to say that. But when you read the scriptures, the greatest evidence the Spirit of God is in you is the fruits of the Spirit, not the gifts. The gifts are optional, right? The fruits are not. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, self-control. And I said, well, I don't speak in the tongues you're referring to, and I'm sure that if God needed me to speak in the biblical gift of tongues, he would enable me. And he was like, do you do miracles? I said, well, I talk to people. (laughs) And he says, the Bible says, unless you do miracles, the Spirit of God is not in you. And I said, okay, that's very interesting. And he says, unless you speak in tongues, the Spirit of God is not in you. And as he was saying these things to me, I was just, I had just become a Christian, okay? And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God just dropped something in my mind I have never, ever forgot. And I said to him, I said, you know, there's a special verse that says that many will come in the last day and say, did I not cast out demons? Did I not do great miracles? And I said, do you remember the response of Jesus? Jesus was shocked and he said, I don't even know you. And I never forgot what he said to me afterwards. He says, I don't care what the scripture says, only what the spirit tells me. The problem with that is that the spirit was the very one who inspired the scriptures. He would not be contradicting himself. Now this may seem like, oh, well, maybe that was a chance thing. But ladies and gentlemen, this is becoming more and more the spirit of the world. Don't worry about what the Bible is teaching. Don't worry about what the scriptures are distinctly saying. Hey, let's just all just head in just one general movement. Let's let the feeling of the world continue. Let's let it go over and over again. But God is calling us like never before to stand upon what the Bible is teaching. Amen? Amen. Number three, we're going to be looking for that movement that keeps all the commandments of God. All of them. I remember, I forgot, I was sitting down with one person and said, wait a minute, why is it? And it was just actually before I came to restoration. Somebody said, they wanted to meet with me. Wonderful Protestant man, he says, can you explain to me why you guys keep the Sabbath? And I said, well, it's in the Ten Commandments. And he's like, but hasn't the Ten Commandments been changed? So I used a traditional kind of logic that people use and explain the Ten Commandments. And then I said this to him. I said, look, let me ask you a question. Let's go to Exodus 20. And I said this. Is it okay for me as a former Hindu to have a, you know, another God on the side? I mean, I'll worship Jesus. And he's like, no, you can't change that one bit. All right. Then I said, okay, number two. I said, is it okay if I have a statue of Buddha that I like rubbing on the belly before I come to church? And he says to me, no, not at all. I said, come on, not even one idol. You got to let me have an idol. And he's like, no, you can't change that. And then I said, okay, we'll take the Lord's name in vain. Is it ever okay for me to take the Lord's name in vain? Just, just once or twice. I mean, it may happen, but do you think it's right? He's like, no. And then I said, okay, let's go to the fifth commandment. And I said to him, I said, okay, I love my parents, but is it ever right for me to dishonor them? He says, no, you shouldn't dishonor them. And then I said, okay, how about this one? Is it okay for me to steal a little bit? Come on, you got to let me steal a little bit. Once in a while, people do it. And he's like, no, you shouldn't be stealing even a little bit. It may happen because you're making bad mistakes, but it's not justified. Okay, how about this one? He was a married man. I said to him, I said, all right, you're married. What's wrong with a little bit of adultery? And he looked at me and he's like, no. (laughs) I said, man. You're tough. You're really tough. And I went through the, the, the nine of the commandments and I said, okay, look, what you're telling me is that I can't change or equivocate any of these commandments, not even in the slightest bit. He said, you're absolutely right. Then I said, can you explain to me why people do it with the fourth one? Amen. 
And he looked at me and he said, oh, you got a good point there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's not like we have to go through many Bible studies or scriptures to try to tell people, hey, the Ten Commandments are teaching, remember the Sabbath day. I mean, it's pretty common sense. It really is. But God wants us to realize that part of this anti-movement would be a reconstitution or a, a uh, recovering of all those things that would be lost. This Elijah power would be bringing back all the truths of the reformers, all the truths that the Protestant reformers step by step were given their life and their blood sacrifice to bring back to the church. And part of that was the recovery of the fourth commandment. The early church, we read earlier, was keeping the fourth commandment. Number four, they will possess a prophetic understanding, an understanding of what's happening in our world today as well as having a genuine, legitimate, prophetic gift. Number five, we'll proclaim a worldwide message, not just in New Mexico, amen? All over the entire world, the gospel will go to every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. Can you say hallelujah to that? Because this is very powerful. Because when we're looking for this kind of movement, this biblical kind of movement, something that was re reminiscent of the early church, we will see every one of these characteristics clearly displayed within that movement. We'll have a message that impacts both the spiritual and physical. Jesus not only preached, he also what? Healed. And what you find in the early church is this powerful, powerful desire to take the gospel everywhere. And what you find in Seventh-day Adventism, in fable, in feeble and defective as she may be, you will find a church that believes in evangelism, that believes in taking the gospel to the entire world. And it's powerful when you realize this. Evangelism is essential to the church as fire is to burning. In other words, if it's not burning, it's not fire. If the church is not doing evangelism, it's not the church. Absolutely correct. So when we're looking around for a movement, we're looking, trying to understand, wait a minute. Does this church believe in evangelism? We will discover that written into the very DNA of Seventh-day Adventism, in the very words itself, the title, Adventism, loving the second coming and telling the world about the second coming, you will find evangelism is part of who we are. Amen. And if it wasn't for evangelism, I would not be standing here today. Because somebody believed in reaching out to me and sharing what the Bible says at a time that I was searching for it. Evangelism is super important, and there are plenty of people who are searching for this. And the gospel that is contained, and that is the earmark of everything we believe in, the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Jesus is extremely important. All of this founded in the scripture. Never forgot one day I was talking to this lady that had come out to my church. And as we were talking, I was talking to her about the Bible and what it says about the love of God and Jesus. And she kept saying to me, but pastor... Mary is blessed. And I said, yeah, she's blessed, but God wants us to follow him. And he's like, Pastor, Mary is blessed. There's nothing wrong with me venerating Mary. And I said, Sister, God wants you to follow his word. He wants you to understand that no person can ever take the place of Jesus Christ in your life. And then she said, but pastor, this is Jesus' mom. <laughs> I felt I was getting nowhere with her. 
And then the Lord impressed me with something that is so powerful. I said, take your Bible. Go to Luke chapter 11. You're going to love this. Take your Bible and actually go to Luke chapter 11. This was so powerful. This was totally spirit-led, and it was what she needed to hear at this very moment. I knew God was speaking in that room when we were talking together. You're going to be blown away by this. Luke chapter 11, if you're there, go ahead and say amen. How in the world are you getting there that fast? Luke, amen. It's already there. Okay. Okay. Luke chapter 11, let's start with verse 24. We're going to start speeding things up, okay? So hang on. Luke chapter 11, are we all there? Okay, I'm not there. Okay. Let's actually start with verse 27. Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 27. Watch what happens. Jesus is at a dinner. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb who bore you and the breast who nursed you. In other words, there was a special dinner, and this woman wanted to give some kind of praise to Jesus. She said, Blessed is the woman who bore you and the breast that nursed you. Ladies and gentlemen, who was she referring to? Mary. She said, Look, blessed is Mary. But watch what Jesus says next. But he said, More than that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You want to know who's more blessed than Mary herself? Those who follow the scriptures. At that moment, she said, Pastor, God's talking to me right now. And I said, of course she is. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand something. The Bible is teaching this beautiful truth. It's about Jesus. Amen? And we want to cut away anything false that is restricting Jesus from being lifted up. And what you find in this beautiful truth that are contained in the Seventh-day Adventist movement, you find the cross that is center, and you find Jesus being lifted up, a gospel that is so attractive to this world. You might have grown up with this, but ladies and gentlemen, if you take it to people who don't know it, they will be drawn to it because it will satisfy the questions and the longings of their heart as it did for me. And as I share it with the world, I see that people do not deny it. They have already been craving for it, something that you might have possessed. Seventh-day Adventism has a special kind of message, a message of health, amen? And that health message is extremely important. You read in the Old Testament, the Jews were given the blessings and the boon of health, and they were able to share that. In fact, do you remember the story when Jacob was an old man, He's coming before King, the Pharaoh, Joseph's leader. And the Bible says that Pharaoh was there and Jacob, as an old man, did something that nobody did to a Pharaoh. He put his hand on him and he blessed him. But then the Pharaoh says to him, how old are you? You want to know why? Egyptians never lived that long. He was shocked. How in the world do you possess this age? <laughs> Amen, do you get it? And so when people are seeing you and they're saying, wait a minute, how old are you? And you're like, I'm 15 years old. And you, and well, that's not the wrong age, but if you look like you're, you know, if you're actually like 85 years old and you, you walk around like you're 40 years old, people are like, wait a minute, how old are you, man or woman? <laughs> be saying, what, what's going on here? And is that that is used as a, as a way to bridge people into the gospel? We were having this great health fair at my church. I never forgot. I was walking to Jamba Juice. 
and lots of healthy people love to go to Jamba Juice. Almost healthy people love to go to Jamba Juice. Went to Jamba Juice. As I was walking out, there was somebody came in who just kind of had a fitness. Uh, you can say they were just really fit, and they had Walkman. And I was passing out some literature about the health fair, and they said, wait a minute, what's this for? And I said, well, it's a great health fair. I'm not interested. I have enough health. <laughs> and then I said this. You want to know who the longest living people on earth are? And then she pulled off her headphones. She said, who? Come to the health fair and you'll find out. <laughs> you know, this is extremely important. Being an evangelist for several years, oftentimes when we bring up the health message, people would say, wait just a second. The Bible says that God has declared all things clear and what that was was a misinterpretation of the text and there'd be this struggle but now these days the many times I've done evangelistic series when I bring up the health message everybody regardless of their background or persuasion is like yep that's the truth that's the undeniable truth uh, wives will be hitting their husband they're like see I've been telling you this for many years but that just tells us something very remarkable about society Theological reasons they used to use to try to say, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible is teaching. Definitely misinterpreted understanding. But now, it's common sense. It's common sense. And we can use this message to the entire world. And I know I'm speaking to the heart of Loma Linda, but guess what? God wants you to take Loma Linda all over the world. Amen? Amen? To share that powerful message and you will be blown away as you see the message of health grow more and more. In fact, what is very interesting that when Elijah was preaching a mighty message, the one who came after him was Elisha. And Elisha was somebody who preached a very special, personable kind of message. One that had um, indications of healing and health. When John the Baptist came on the scene, a mighty preacher. But then Jesus showed up. And he did the message of health and healing. The church, when it started, had a powerful prophetic voice. But now it's heading towards this understanding of personal health for people. Ladies and gentlemen, the Elijah, Elisha message is being, uh, is part of this church's movement. Can you say amen to that? And so when we're looking for that, you can see clearly here from the world that there is this understanding. God has apparently blessed this church with some kind of uh, a great blessing. Even today, Adventists operate 157 hospitals as well as 358 clinics. What is so remarkable, in third world countries where proselytizing is illegal, Seventh-day Adventists find the door because of health. Even the Iran, the Shah of Iran, before he was ousted, loved Seventh-day Adventists. And the reason why he loved them is because they were bringing the message of health and healing. And is that not the message of Christ? It is. But not just a health message. We have a message of education. Trying to get everyone educated about the things of the world and about spiritual things. And that is so remarkable. Even Jeru, um, who took over, the Indian Prime Minister who took over, who became president, who took over after Gandhi, remarked to one person, I've seen the record, I like Adventists. Their educational system is wonderful. 
Ladies and gentlemen, all over the world, people who have nothing to do with the Christian faith remark at these bountiful things that God has given to the church, and we are to continue growing and share this gospel with the entire world. In fact, a lot of people love going to India and holding these great evangelistic series. Tons of people get baptized, but they really never change from worshiping other gods. But the educational system is very effective because it's not just a theological change. It of itself is a very cultural kind of change that happens. A saturation of these biblical principles that are being lived out. And it's very effective in India. Hindus and Muslims will pay top notch to go to Adventist schools. Why? Because they see the quality of education and the godliness that is there and undeniable. Ladies and gentlemen, here we even see that the Seventh day Adventist Church stands for Bible truth. And here you are, you're looking at what the horse's mouth is saying right here. The Protestant claiming the Bible to be the only guide of faith has no warrant for observing Sunday. In this matter, now notice this, the Seventh-day Adventist is the only consistent Protestant. And I appreciate the honesty of the Roman Catholics here. I absolutely do. For a church that follows tradition here, they're saying, look, if you want to follow the Bible, you might as well be a Seventh-day Adventist. And that's coming straight out of the horse's mouth. And that is remarkable when you begin to hear that. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change a church ever happen, uh, did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. The day of the Lord was chosen, not from any direction noted in the scriptures, but from the Catholic church sense of its own power. People, now notice this, who think that the scripture should be the sole authority, notice this, I love that next phrase, should logically become Seventh-day Adventists. If you're saying to yourself, I want to follow the Bible. If you're saying to yourself, I want to be a Protestant Christian. If you're saying to yourself, I want to follow what God wants me to do. Take a good look at what the Catholics are saying. If you want to do that, become a Seventh-day Adventist. And that's remarkable. And I appreciate that honesty. When I was learning these great truths, I was somebody who was in education. At that time, I was in college taking various kinds of classes. And it was a Seventh-day Adventist who began to share, and little did I realize, but now looking back, Providence had brought me there. Just like Providence has brought many of you there. It may have seemed coincident or choice, but the Spirit of God was moving you, leading you to this great understanding that God is calling you to be part of this great movement to take the gospel to the entire world. And when the gospel goes to the entire world, then Jesus will come back. Amen? Then Jesus will come back. Jeffrey McDonald reports that the SDA church is the fastest growing church in the United States. You want to know why? Because people are interested in a biblical message. They're interested in a modern message. They're interested in a relevant message. And let me tell you something. I have spoken to many, many young adults who want purpose in their life, who want truth in their life, and they love the message of Seventh-day Adventism because it contains all of that. One of the reasons why I became a Seventh-day Adventist is because as the Bible was being studied, I could ask questions. I didn't have to be afraid of asking those questions. As I said earlier to you, Seventh-day Adventism is a very dialogical religion. There's dialogue and discussion as you're understanding and grappling with these truths so that those truths become your truths. And that's the way Jesus would have it to be. Nobody is born into the church. Nobody. Being part of the church is a decision you must make one time in your life where you say, God, I own it. 
I own it. I truly own it. I see it. And I want to be part of this great movement that is fast finishing up the gospel in the entire world. Ladies and gentlemen, God is calling you to be part of that great movement. He is calling you to, to join in and see as the gospel is being proclaimed, as this great giant is being awakened and the gospel is going everywhere rapidly. God is calling you out of the world, out of confusion, and into this beautiful movement that is finishing the gospel. I want to share a very real story with you. We've been all aware of what's been happening with the stuff over the ocean with the Malaysian airline. People are asking, where has this plane gone? And as this talk about planes abounds, many times those in America are reminded of that, those planes that crashed into those buildings years ago. It's something you don't forget. It was a visceral experience as the tape would replay over and over again those planes on 9-11 crash into that building and people screaming as these things were taking place. That morning I heard it for myself. I saw it for myself. It was a strange day. I witnessed the whole thing. I just shake my head in disbelief as the pictures and the videos were becoming more clear as the understanding of what actually took place more and more was happening and being exposed. A lot of individuals after that great tragedy visited Ground Zero, a great cemetery. You go there, there's this solemn feeling as you're walking upon the burial ground of thousands of innocent Americans. Many people lost their lives that day. Many individuals shared stories of the heroes that were there and all the, the things that happened as men and women rushed to save people. I heard one account of somebody who was racing down the stairs of one of those buildings that eventually collapsed. And as they were walking down those stairs as fast as they could with their stuff in hand, they noticed firefighters going up the stairs. One individual remarks as they looked at this firefighter as he was going upstairs, he looked directly at their eyes and it was almost as if there was this understanding he wasn't going to come down. There are many heroes that day. Many of us have witnessed different kinds of tragedies that took place. But 9-11 just seemed very strange. It was as if patriotism, the history of America, the spirit of America was wounded, hit to its very core, struck that left this country paralyzed as everyone was trying to understand what took place. 9-11 was a very real tragedy that many of us experienced, and I'm sure there were probably many here who were connected to people who were lost. Yet in the midst of this tragedy, 
and this great sacrifice of people who lost their lives, hope began to emerge. Shining light began to appear as people began to discover more and more there was reason to keep going even after a tragedy like this that claimed many innocent people, many innocent firefighters. Hope began to become stronger and stronger as repairs, as construction was taking place again, as memorials were set up, funerals took place, celebrations took place about how the American spirit was not dead but would keep going in spite of this. And that those who caused this great trouble would be eventually taken into prison. And you look at this event and you think to yourself, what a great sad thing that took place. What good could come out of this tragedy? It's very interesting. Somebody introduced an idea. Somebody in the Navy. They introduced a special kind of idea and this was the idea. They would begin to commission and legislate a bill that would produce a special kind of ship. A ship unlike other ships that existed. And so building began to take place and what was so remarkable about this ship, ladies and gentlemen, they were going to include the beams, the steel beams of those buildings, melt them down and built them into the hull of this ship. And so this building began to take place of this great warship. And right there, this special placard was made and it would be right on the very hull of this mighty warship. And it would say the words, never forget. A reminder of all those people who sacrificed their life and eventually this ship was built called the LPD-21, built out of the rubble of that great tragedy. This ship would have different kinds of classifications, would be one of the most advanced ships of the U.S. Navy, a kind of flagship, reconnaissance, combat, expedition, transport. This special kind of ship would be taken throughout the entire world and there, right there on that placard that was built into the hall, that was part of the hall, they would see those words, never forget. Don't forget the great tragedy and the sacrifices of those men and women that gave their life. And as this warship would go over the world, a message would be communicated that the spirit of America was not broken. It was not finished in spite of this great tragedy. Ladies and gentlemen, tragedies took place. Great tragedies that happened during the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. Millions of Christians lost their lives so that you could possess this book in your hand today and have a faith and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Men and women sacrifice themselves so you could be at this place today and you could receive the blessings 
of all those sacrifices, men and women gave up their lives so that one day their children, their posterity, great-grandchildren, and the children that would come after them would be able to worship and believe the same God they, have came, they came to trust. Ladies and gentlemen, what is so beautiful about Seventh-day Adventism, it does not receive its heritage from the Roman church. It receives its heritage by the blood of the Protestant reformers. And it's built into the very DNA of the ship. This great warship that God has set up that has taken the gospel to the entire world. And God is calling you to be part of this great movement with the mighty emblem of never forget. The Protestant Reformation is not over. And we now are in the most crucial part of this. And God is calling us to carry the scriptures forward, onward, to be part of this great movement. Not just to watch it take place, not to be a spectator, but to say, I want to be part of what God is doing. God, through his providence, has brought me to understand these great truths that are convicting my heart. Now, ladies and gentlemen, God is calling us to join, like never before, this great, powerful movement of destiny. God is offering you that privilege. And this is an exciting thing. For many of us, this may be the first time we heard this. For others, we have heard this many times, but now the feeling is sinking in. The conviction is hitting us. God doesn't want me just simply to be part of the church. He is calling me to be part of this great body of believers that is going by God's grace to take the gospel to the entire world so that Jesus can come back. He is calling you, ladies and gentlemen. If you're hearing his voice, God is calling you in a special way. Not to stay where you are at, but to move forward and to keep heading into the direction of that light. As you have sensed the great truths over and over again, the last two weeks, it's because God was speaking to you and he was pulling you to understand this great purpose. And what a beautiful purpose will be revealed as you join this special movement. We're going to pass out some cards right now. And this is a time for us to make a very tangible kind of decision. A decision that we've never made before. It might be a decision that we have made many times before, but regardless, God is calling us at this moment to hear his voice. You know, it's so interesting. Genesis 22, verse 18, describes a man, Abraham, who heard the voice of God. The Bible says this, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my, what? Voice. The Bible tells us this, Exodus 19, verse 5, to Moses, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, look what he says, then you shall be to me a special treasure. To me, above all people, for all the earth is mine. God is calling you into this great movement. He's calling you into this body, his bride, to partake of the blessings and the great purpose he has for you. Jeremiah 17, or 7 verse 23 says this, This is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God. God is calling you, ladies and gentlemen, to listen to his voice. 
to listen to the conviction of the Spirit and the truth of God's Word. He says, I have earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting them, saying, Obey my voice. God is calling you to be obedient to his word. Jesus says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. You might be somebody who was part of another religion, another church. But night after night, you have listened to the word of God. And undeniably, you can sense the conviction of the spirit and the voice of God speaking to you. Jesus is speaking to you and he says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I will bring in. Look what he says next. They will hear my voice. Jesus knows that those other sheep will respond to him. They will listen to him because they have heard the voice of God calling out to them. Jesus says, my sheep, my people, regardless of where they're at, he says, hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. Jesus knows something about those people who are his. He says, I know these people because they're the kind of people that listen when I'm speaking. Jesus told Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. To a man who was surrounded by so many versions of what truth was, so many perspectives and worldviews, Jesus told them, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Everyone who loves the truth knows when I am speaking to him. You know the reasonableness of the truth, the common sense of the truth. It makes, it makes sense and it's clear, ladies and gentlemen, God is calling you to listen to his voice. Revelation 3 verse 20 says something powerful. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock the door of your heart. And he said, if anyone hears my voice, he says this, and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. And ultimately, this great appeal that goes to the entire world says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. God is calling you, ladies and gentlemen, before this world comes to an end. Today, if you hear his voice, listen to it, open your heart. If you're of the truth, I know that you will. God is calling you like never before to join this mighty movement that is preparing the world just like the first Elijah, just like the second Elijah, to follow God and be ready for the greatest event of all time, the second coming. Ladies and gentlemen, please leave today making a decision for Christ. Leave today knowing that you've done all in your power to open up your heart to Jesus, to listen to his voice. Don't leave without making a special kind of decision. Why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus as a missionary to our planet to begin a movement begin a mighty work, Lord, to share that love with the dying and fractured world. And God, we don't want to wait. We want to be part of what you're doing. 
Thank you so much for bringing us here, for allowing us to hear things that are convicting our hearts. God, help us to respond to that as your, as your spirit pulls us more and more. Lord, I pray that, especially for those who are struggling, God, and afraid to fully commit themselves to you, help them to trust that you are truly a loving God and that you are safe to trust and you will not abandon them and that you will love them and grant to their life that which you have promised, a future and a hope. God, help us to be faithful in these times. The world is getting worse, Lord. But Father, help us to be more faithful to what the Bible is teaching, to cling to you like never before. God, you are our guide and our shepherd forever. For this we pray and we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.